We turn in God's inspired word this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 30. The book of Deuteronomy chapter 30. And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and, that, and shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy soul, then that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out unto the uttermost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good, and multiply thee above thy fathers. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies and on them that hate thee, which persecuted thee. And thou shalt return and obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments which I command thee this day. And the Lord thy God will make thee plenteous in every work of thine hand, in the fruit of thy body and in the fruit of thy cattle and in the fruit of thy land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good, as he rejoiced over thy fathers, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, and if thou turn unto the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. For this commandment which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, Neither is it far off, it is not in heaven, that thou should say, Who shall go up for us to heaven, and bring it near unto us, that, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea, that thou should say, Who shall go over the sea for us, and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. See, I have set before thee this day life and good, and death and evil, and that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply, and that the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. But if thine heart turn away, so that thou wilt not hear, but shalt be drawn away and serve other God, worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day 
that ye shall surely perish, and that ye shall not prolong your days upon the land whither thou passest over Jordan to go to possess it. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice, and that thou mayest cleave unto him. For he is thy life and the length of thy days, that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. In the light of that passage and many other portions of Scripture, I call your attention this morning to the instruction of Lord's Day 2 of our Heidelberg Catechism, with its three questions and answers, as this Lord's Day introduces the first part of the Catechism, the first of the three things necessary for us to know that we enjoying that only comfort that is ours in life and death may live and die happily. So the first is the greatness of your misery. Whence knowest thou thy misery? Out of the law of God. What doth the law of God require of us? Christ teaches us that briefly, Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Canst thou keep these things perfectly? In no wise. For I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, just a reminder as we saw last week, the Heidelberg Catechism, beginning already in Lord's Day 1, is a personal confession of the child of God, from the viewpoint of his joy and comfort in the knowledge of salvation. That's the approach. This is life eternal, Jesus said, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. John 17, verse 3 in the conscious appropriation of this truth, there is joy and comfort, not only in the midst of sorrow, but through sorrow. We see our Lord Jesus Christ leading us to glory through the sorrows that he gives us in his grace. The sorrow which is ours is fundamentally the sorrow of sin 
of our sin and the consequences of our sin by the just and holy God. That's the essence of our sorrow. And we notice, too, that the viewpoint of the catechism is personal to the believer who's already saved, who already has this only comfort in life and death, but who must also give account of that comfort, always. In order to possess this comfort, we need to know three things. The first, the greatness of our sins and miseries. The second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. And finally, how I might express my gratitude to God for such a deliverance. And we have to remember as we treat the next three or four Lord's Days that the approach of the Catechism here is to give us and to draw from us the confession of the reason why we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And we have to remember that lest we have not the gospel, but only the misery and condemnation set forth here. The purpose of the instructor in reminding us of the greatness of our misery is not to make us live in that misery of our condemnation, but to comfort us. And To have that comfort, it's first necessary to know the greatness of our misery. When I know my sorrow, and I might add, to the extent that I know my sorrow, that is not superficial sorrow, but my true misery and sorrow, then by faith in Christ I have comfort. We have to know our sins and miseries, the greatness of them. We have to know that misery both as to its nature as well as to its extent before we can ever appreciate, spiritually appreciate, the only comfort that is ours in life and death. And that knowledge is not simply a a one-time knowledge once-in-a-lifetime knowledge. It's the daily experience of the child of God. We have to give account of this repeatedly, daily even, all our life long. Then we have comfort, peace which passes all understanding in life and in death. So I call your attention this morning to the knowledge of our misery. And we notice, first of all, its necessity, secondly, its source, and finally, its contents. The knowledge of our misery. Why is that knowledge necessary? What is the source of that knowledge, and what is its content? Why is the knowledge of our misery necessary? Every person knows misery. The world's full of misery. Pain and grief and 
sorrow and sickness, suffering, tears. You see misery everywhere. The news is full of it. Everyone knows there's misery. Wars, revolution, rebellion, sickness, auto wrecks, plane crashes, murder, crime, fires, drunkenness, hatred, everything. There is spiritual, moral misery wherever you turn. In fact, without having our only comfort in life and death, one might well ask, who would want to bring children into this world? We bring forth children for heaven. But the world brings forth children only for this world, a world full of misery. In a natural and very general sense of the word, there is no person that's not miserable. Some might laugh it off. Some might say, I don't care. I've worked with people like that. A man I once worked with said to me, don't talk to me about death. I don't care. When I die, I go into that hole in the ground and that's it. There's nothing after that. Makes no difference. Then one morning, I found him on the ground, drawing his last breath, dead of a heart attack. Terror written on his face. Everyone's miserable. Everyone's afraid. And the reason for that fear is ultimately death. Remove death, there's no fear anymore. All misery is principally the knowledge of death. But death is inevitable. We live in the midst of death. And therefore, there's misery everywhere. But the question isn't, do you know that you are miserable? Rather, the question is, how do you know your misery? The source of that knowledge will also determine the extent of your knowledge. And then there are many questions we must face. Where is your misery located? What's the cause of it? And having located the cause, what's the extent of it? How serious is this misery? You might have questioned a remark that I made in the sermon last week. It's really a, a, a statement also that comes from our baptism form, which speaks of this life as a continual death. Nothing but evil. Just what is the extent of our misery? 
You see, these are important questions. It's not only that we know that we are miserable, but that we know our misery. You know, that's true from a natural point of view. If a man is sick, a competent physician doesn't just pour medicine into it. He wants to know the cause of that sickness. When I have pain that compels me to go to the doctor, I don't go to the doctor expecting him immediately to cut me open. First, we need to know what's the nature of the pain. Where is its location? Is it foot pain? Pain in the stomach? Your throat? Ear pain? Chest pain? We have to know the location and the cause of that misery. Well, so it is in the broader sense. What's the nature of this misery? Is it something superficial? Like a cut on the finger? Where is it located? Is is it in our environment? The matter of climate change? Is the cause of our misery to be found in social conditions? Then let's change the conditions. Is it a lack of education? There are many say, then let's have more education. Is alcohol and drug use the source of our misery? Some might cry for prohibition. Is capitalism the problem? Some argue that. That's the source of the misery in our country. So in its place, they want socialism. Or communism. You see, we need to know our misery the cause of our misery, so we can take proper corrective action. Is that misery in man himself? Then then he ought to strive to get ahead. But what is the nature of that misery? It's necessary that we must know, and we must know not just the nature of that misery, we must also know the extent of it. That's true also from a natural point of view. Suppose the doctor locates that that trouble in my stomach. It's nice that he found out where the trouble is. Maybe that wasn't even so difficult to find out. What's the extent of the problem? Is it merely a question of Acidity? Would a a prescription of, of strong antacids cure? Is it an ulcer? How serious? Will I need surgery? 
Is it cancer? To what extent is the organ damaged? These questions must all be answered before a remedy is applied. And once again, that's true also in a spiritual sense of the word. It's it's a necessity that the instructor would have a see and give account of. Did you find out that the cause of your misery is not in the environment? It's not in education itself. It's not in capitalism. It's not in substances. You see rather that the problem is in man himself. Well then, is it simply a matter of his will? That's what the Pelagian says. The man's nature is good. Sin is simply a matter of the will. And so some say, let's simply preach and tell man that if he does this and this and this and fulfills these conditions, God will bless him. Is that misery a matter of the heart, of the nature? Then it's more serious. What is the extent of of the problem? Is a spiritual operation necessary? Suppose the trouble is my guilt. How serious is my guilt? Can I atone for my sin? Can I partially atone for my sin and satisfy God and his justice? If you say yes to that, you cannot say Jesus Christ is your only comfort in life and death. Then maybe he's partly your comfort, but not all. Suppose that I can never pay for my sin and guilt. Jesus Christ has to pay for my sin and guilt. There's still another question. Am I only guilty or am I also corrupt? And if I'm corrupt, how corrupt am I? Am I so corrupt? Am I totally depraved so that I am incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? You see how practical these questions are? They concern all one all-important question. Is Jesus Christ my only comfort in life and death? One could also almost get the impression that with the wording of question and answer one, particularly the reference to our comfort in life and death, that the instructor anticipated our objection. That objection that we considered a little bit last week. What, what do you mean in life? We speak of comfort in death. What do you mean in life? Well, again, it comes down to what is the extent of our misery? Is that misery lesser in life? 
There is seduction and temptation everywhere. And do you think you can withstand it apart from Christ? And to that, the child of God answers, makes no difference what changes you make in society, because that doesn't touch the root of our misery. My misery is in me. The indictment of God is that there is none that doeth good, no, not one. And so we read in Romans 3, verses 13 through 18, Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we know that that indictment is true. I know. Because I'm the chief of sinners. So corrupt and depraved that if it were not for the unfathomable love of God, I would be absolutely lost. I cannot come to Jesus except I be drawn by Him. My salvation depends upon God. Whence do I know this? What is the source of this knowledge? Out of the law of God. The Christian knows his misery out of the law of God. And the catechism at this point does not set the law over against the gospel as if the two are opposed. The law as the source of the knowledge of our misery is presented here as an integral part of the gospel. It's not identified with the gospel ever. But the law is an integral part of the gospel for the one who is redeemed by Christ. Now it's important that we understand the essence of this law of God The law is not a mechanical, arbitrary set of rules imposed upon us from the outside. You know, our government officials make laws, many of which are arbitrary. Some of them may be good laws. Some of them may be beneficial in in protecting society, but regardless, they, they are imposed upon us. That's not the case with God's law. The law of God is the living will of God for every creature. It's the sphere within which every creature must live. So there's a law of God that encompasses every creature according to his nature. There's a law for the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth. There's a law for the tree. That law for the tree is that it must be rooted in the soil. When a tree is uprooted, it dies. The law for the fish is that he lives within the sphere of the water. 
when the fish departs from that sphere, should you catch it and throw it onto dry land? God kills it. It dies. Well, there's also a law of God for man. And actually, there are many laws for man. There's a law for man's physical nature, a law for his heart and lungs, kidneys. There's a law for his psychical nature, a law for his mind and willing and thinking. It's all law. And so for man, according to his nature, and that in distinction from the other creatures, there's also the moral law. And that's the distinctive law of God for man. That law in which God says to man, to you and to me, not merely in the Ten Commandments or in the written summary of the law, but God speaks to man every moment, love me. That's the very purpose for your existence. Love me. There is never a moment where God does not say to every person, love me. So we read in Romans 1 verse 19, that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. That law is in harmony with our nature. God created us to live in the sphere of that law. So you might remember the story when the lawyer came to Jesus and said, Master, which is the great commandment in the, in the law? And Jesus did not say, this is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord thy God. No, the Lord said, this is the first and great commandment. This is the commandment that encompasses all the other commandments. The commandment. The great commandment. And the second commandment is like unto it, is essentially the same. It is rooted in and flows from the great commandment. There is no love for the neighbor apart from love for God. Love me, God says. Love me from moment to moment. So young man, when you say to that young woman, I love you, you better examine whether or not you mean I lust you. Because all that you do must be love out of love for God. Love me, God says. Love me in all that you do with your whole being, your heart and soul and mind. Love me. Where do we stand before that law, beloved? Don't overlook the fact that the Catechism does not quote the law as to its precepts here. You all know the precepts of the law. Don't, don't, don't do this. You hear them every Lord's Day. 
But the question now is not concerned with precepts. If only we look at outward precepts, maybe we're pretty good. And when we went through the Ten Commandments not so long ago, we were warned of that danger. Not looking at the law as did the Pharisees. Jesus would have us know. He would have us know ourselves, not merely according to the precepts of the law, but as to its essential principle. And the essential principle of the law is not do this. It's really be this. Be a lover of God. Love is not a question of ability or what we do or can do. Love is a question of our nature, of what we are. I either love or hate, either or. And that's not a matter of what I do, it's a matter of who I am. When you stand before the precepts, you simply stand before demands. But there's a much deeper question. When you stand before the essence of the law, the question is, who are you? Who are you? Who are you in your heart and soul and mind? Are you a lover of God? When you sin, the question is not, what have I done? The question is, what am I? And to that question, we who are children of God, we who have this only comfort in life and death, cannot say anything but, I'm all wrong. Not only I do wrong, that's true too. The deepest question is, what am I? And when we look at ourselves as we are by nature, apart from Christ, we can only say, I am all wrong. The demand of the law is, love me. That's what God says. And we don't love him. We don't bring that to expression in our lives. In the light of the law of God is revealed to us the knowledge of our misery. Because the law points us to the very core of our being into the contents of our souls. What are the humiliating contents of that knowledge? The contents of that knowledge provides the answer to the question, canst thou keep all these things perfectly? That is, can, can you live your whole life, body, soul, and mind, with 
all, at all the time, all the time and everywhere, in the home, in the workplace, at school, in church, can you live your life in love for God and from that principle love your neighbor as yourself? In no wise. For I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. That's a terrible indictment, isn't it? To be prone to hate, you mustn't have the wrong understanding of that. It, it, it doesn't mean that I'm inclined to hate even though I don't always do that. The catechism, when it says, I am prone to hate, means that while the law of God stands upright, I have so departed from that law that I, am, I have fallen flat on my face in hatred. I'm like that young child who doesn't get his way and lies down in rebellion, pounding the floor. That's what it means that I am prone by nature to hate God and the neighbor. Instead of standing upright in the law of love, I'm prone by God, prone by nature to hate God. I'm all wrong. That's a terrible indictment. question is, is it, is it an indictment of you as you are by nature? you confess that? You know, many speak as did the Laodiceans. I am rich and increase with goods. Have need of nothing. While the Lord Christ says, Thou knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Is that your self-indictment? In the light of God's law? Or do you criticize this severe preaching when I say this to you? See, it's not enough to know that we are by nature enemies of God. Satan knows that of himself. The question is, do you know that hatred as your misery? That's my misery. Is that your confession? People of God, if that's your confession, do you know why? I'm going to say something that might sound contradictory, but it's simply a reflection of what the Christian is like in himself. The Apostle 
Paul gives voice to the paradox of the Christian when he writes in Romans 7, verses 24 and 25, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Simultaneous lamentation and victory. That's the life of the Christian. If you say from the heart that I that spiritually you are full of hatred toward God by nature, that your that misery is your corruption. The reason is that you love him. If you say from the heart that by nature I hate God. In my flesh, in all my members, I show forth hatred of God. If you say that in the true sorrow of repentance, in the true knowledge of your sin and misery, it's only because you belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has delivered you from the power of that sin and death and instilled in your heart the principle of the new man, the new life in Christ. And with that knowledge, you can confess with the Apostle in Titus 3, verses 3 through 6, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And out of that small but overwhelming principle of the love of God, you say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm sorry, Lord. Forgive and deliver me. For I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Thou hast given me to him. That is my only comfort in life and death. Amen. Heavenly Father, as Thou dost expose to us the greatness of our misery, in Thy tender mercy Thou dost lead us to Him who alone could and has saved us, our faithful Savior Jesus Christ, to whom we belong in body and soul, in life and death. And we thank Thee for Jesus' sake. Amen.